This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, as suspected measles cases rise in American Samoa, we speak to vaccine expert Dr. Helen Petrusis Harris about what can be done to stem the outbreak. And ocean temperatures have broken world records, and climate scientists say it's what they've been warning about all along. Global warming will continue until we reach net zero emissions of greenhouse gases globally. And we hear how an archaeological discovery is reimagining what the Pacific's ancient past looks like. Vintage stamped pottery. It shows the interactions and the migration routes of uh, early settlers. They, were, they are the initial settlers of the island. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, we start in New Caledonia, where a spate of shark attacks in the capital, Numia, has prompted the government to close down its beaches. One month the month into the year-long ban, not everyone is happy. Tourism operators say they are struggling to attract business. Others say the extreme measures are not backed by science. But some argue the beach closures are what's needed to keep Numia safe. Cooper Williams in Numia with this report. The death of Australian tourist Chris Davis after a shark attack in February was the final tragedy that pushed Numia's government to take action. 59-year-old Chris Davis was attacked while swimming. Authorities there believe the shark responsible has been caught. Australian man killed by a shark in New Caledonia. He is being remembered as a loving father and husband by his wife and kids. The father of three was swimming near a crowded beach in the French territory when he was bitten several times. Witnesses tried to save him but he died soon after being brought to shore. Within days, the local mayor announced swimmers would no longer be able to swim in Numia's beaches. Tourism operators say they are struggling to adjust. All our beaches are closed and it's affecting a lot of business for us. Alfred Nauka runs Getaway Shore Tours and says the beach closures are hitting his bottom line. I mean, the ban is very, very long. So because, I mean, until the 31st of uh, December, that's too long for everybody in tourism business. The ban has been put in place as a response to Chris Davis's death and also several other recent shark sightings and attacks at Numia's beaches. For tourists like Sydney mother Nicole Plum, it comes as a disappointing shock. We packed all of our snorkeling gear and we were ready to do it and um, there's not much else to do here. So coming on, they were like, you know, you can have shore tours, but we came here to swim, you know. We come to an island to swim and it was a bit surprising. I mean, I guess we thought it would be quite short, but if it's going to carry on, we, we wouldn't be back unless we could swim. I mean, look at these beaches. You can't, can't dip in them. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're so pretty and you can't even swim in them. I reckon it'd be more dangerous to zip one. (laughs) Australia's government has since updated its travel guidelines for New Caledonia, warning visitors of the measures. However, there are fears the beach closures are already driving many tourists away. Local restaurateur Stéphane Durand says he's noticed a drop in people visiting his venue. Well, I think the closure of the beaches is uh, very sad for us because uh, we can see we have many less customers. And um, unfortunately, we are very impacted with this uh, measure. The ban is affecting his personal life as well. 
Yeah, for, for, of course, because uh, I'm used to go swimming every day. You know, the restaurant is just in front of the beach, so when uh, the restaurant is closed, I go swimming. But uh, this is how life goes, unfortunately. Authorities say the year-long swimming ban will give them time to install shark nets and other protective measures at the beaches. Mayor Sonia Lagarde has told local media she is putting the safety of Noumea's residents above everything else. But on the city's streets, opinions are mixed. It's, it's too, too long. No, it's not too extreme. Fair enough, I reckon. It's bad for the shops because uh, we uh, don't have guests. Trop long. What do you think that is good and bad? Other beaches outside the capital have also introduced swimming bans after sharks have been spotted in their waters too. Despite fears this will lead to a downturn in tourism dollars, not all tourists are unhappy with the move, like William from Sydney. This thing about the safety for all the tourists, I think that they make the, uh, a good decision. But I think even in that case, it's still uh, um, good to keep people safe, just close the beach, just to protect them from the shark. Yeah. The swimming bans are one of a number of controversial responses to Numia's shark problem. The local government has introduced a culling campaign, killing more than 40 sharks since the first attack in January. Killing sharks like that is a problem because sharks are playing a key role, you know, in, 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 the, in the ecosystem. Dr Eric Kluwer is a senior scientist and professor at the Paris École Pratique des Hortétudes. He believes a single aggressive shark was most likely behind the recent attacks, rather than a spike in shark numbers in Numia's beaches. I don't think there is a significant change of the shark behavior. What is changing, actually, is the probability of encounters between sharks and people. It's not the fault of the sharks that are changing their behavior. We are changing our behavior, our way of using, you know, you know the ocean. We need to develop clever science aiming, you know, at an improved risk management. Globally, shark attacks are very rare. The World Animal Foundation says you are more likely to die from a wasp, snake or dog than a shark bite. Dr Kluwer believes the beach bans could ramp up paranoia in communities. I think the beach ban is a bad idea because it maintains fear among, among the public. Local tourism operator Mr Nauka says his team are doing their best to adjust to the wave of cancellations and refunds. Yeah. Which, uh, we try to create different tools to replace the beaches. So we have like village tours, which people can go taste the local food and tasting kava and all that, you know, and the city sightseeing. He says these changes are helping bring in income, but with a year-long beach ban looming, he hopes the government might soon reverse its decision. That was Cooper Williams in Numia with that report. And ABC has reached out to Numia's mayor's office for a response to some of those criticisms around its swimming bans. We are still awaiting a response. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. The number of probable measles cases in American Samoa continues to rise, with now more than 50 people suspected of having the illness and two positive cases confirmed. A mass vaccination campaign is underway, but will it be enough to avoid furthering the outbreak? Joining us now is Dr. Helen Petusis-Harris, a vaccine expert in New Zealand from the University of Auckland. Good morning to you, Helen. Good morning. Um, now, we're, we're seeing here in, in American Samoa that authorities have moved quickly after that first case wasn't identified. They've, they've shut down schools and are encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. 
can you bring us in? You know, I know you're not behind the response, but why might the government there be acting so urgently with just a couple of cases identified now? Oh, I think you don't have to look far away from their, their border to see uh, what can happen when, um, I guess, actions aren't taken very, very quickly. And now, of course, American Samoa are in uh, better shape in terms of being immune to measles than um, their neighbour Samoa. Uh, but but still, this thing can travel very very quickly. It's it spreads like wildfire. So I guess getting a short sharp uh, shutdown, if you like, is is hopefully um, going to mitigate some of the uh, potential cases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you're alluding to there, the um, our thoughts to the 2019 measles crisis in Samoa isn't very far. Um, was this, was it a significant thing that we saw during that outbreak in 2019 that we're seeing now in American Samoa with a couple of cases then spreading quite rapidly through the community? Well, certainly that's what you would see with a measles outbreak if it's able to um, take hold. That is, if you've got enough susceptible people um, across your population, it's able to um, jump jump to a few and then you've got a critical mass and away it goes. Um, and certainly uh, in uh, in Samoa that, you know, the case exported from, from New Zealand uh, took off very, very quickly. Um, but the moves to mitigate that, of course, were, were, were not what we're seeing here. Mm. Yes, because it, it, things are moving quite quickly. I mean, I, are you encouraged by the fact, as you mentioned, American Samoa does have a higher vaccination rate, we believe? Um, should that protect the community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm not sure what the coverage is across the whole population because, of course, you can perhaps be vaccinating your kids really, your really small children really well, but you might have all of these gaps in other age groups as well. So it's kind of important to know what what the immunity looks like across all age groups. But if it's reasonably high and they're moving really quickly, I mean, you know, hopefully they they will get a control of it. Um, But if they do have larger immunity gaps, that will be potentially more difficult. I mean, it's interesting that they're focusing on on the younger children here. And in fact, I, I um, heard the uh, press conference around this outbreak, and and uh, the health um, authorities there said the suspected cases that they have, and they now have above fifty suspected cases. They range mainly in children between the ages of two months old and thirteen years old. Why might that be the case? Are, are children most at risk here when it comes to measles outbreaks? Well, um, when infants are born, um, they t- they usually uh, acquire they've acquired some immunity from their mother um, mm. from measles. That might be from her own. She may have had had an infection in her lifetime, or having been vaccinated, and that immunity lasts for months. Um, not as long as it used to, because most people have had vaccine immunity rather than naturally acquired immunity, which lasts a lot longer. Um, in terms of what gets passed on to that infant. But anyway, about, say, six months. Um, at that point, um, an infant becomes more vulnerable um, as that they've lost that protection they acquired from their mother. Yet we, we're not generally vaccinating them at that age. Vaccines are given in the... Um, after the, in the first, you know, between the ages of one and two, usually about 15 months. Some places are doing it younger at, at one year. So you've potentially got quite a lot of um, really young children that are vulnerable. So so that's, um, that's where you bring that vaccine dose down, the first dose down to six months of age. Mm, which is what has been done in American Samoa, isn't it? Yeah, so that's one of the strategies when you've got an outbreak. Um, it's more ideal to, for the, for the 
children to be a little bit older, but if you give them a dose at six months, it's um, it, it, it can help and then they can have their other doses later on. I mean, how effective is it? Because they are doing this mass vaccination campaign there in American Samoa, encouraging everyone really to roll up, get this job for free. But do you receive sort of instant protection from, from measles once you get, get the vaccine? Or will it take some time for, for us to actually see that protection spread through, through the community? Well, kind of. Um, a single dose is actually of this particular vaccine super effective. It's about 93 maybe 95% protective. So it's really good. Um, It takes, you know, to get that full protection, it takes weeks. But if you um, get your vaccine in before that exposure, before um, an infection can take hold, you can actually um, potentially beat it. Uh, So there is some advantage there. You can start um, seeing a difference quite quickly. Wow, that's quite impressive. So if it is such um, an effective vaccine, um, why might we be seeing these cases pop up in American Samoa? I mean, to give listeners a context here, I understand measles was eradicated in America in 2000. And, you know, we're still seeing a small number of outbreaks, but generally it's it's quite dormant, isn't it, the measles um, outbreak? Why why might be seeing it come out? I know some people are saying the pandemic might have um, something to do with it. Uh, yeah, I think it does. Um, it was, it's a disease that's been eliminated from the whole of the Americas, actually, mm. up until more recent times, uh, and other places in the world, um, Australia, New Zealand, for example, um, because those, um, the uptake of vaccines, um, became, you know, were high, were high enough to, um, to prevent onward transmission should a case arrive in the country. Now, those rates have been declining and they were declining prior to the pandemic. So, so measles was all be already becoming a concern and it was starting, we're starting to see rises globally. So that, that was, um, pre pandemic, of course. Um, and now we've had the pandemic, things have got a lot worse. So we've had, um, sort of further and significant declines in our vaccine uptake, I'm afraid. And um, and now that we're all mobile again, um, moving around the planet, um, measles is just going to keep getting off planes. So it is going to be, be for a while, yeah, a constant threat. Oh, right. So, so is this something that you, I guess, public health experts like yourself are concerned about that we might be seeing? Are we already seeing measles outbreaks like this, like the one we're seeing in American Samoa elsewhere? Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, measles is on the rise, and and because you because it is so incredibly infectious, um, and because we are so mobile, it just it, it just gets on a plane. Um, somebody's feeling well, but they're infectious, and um, jumps off the other end, and potentially into a community that does not have um, you know has a lot of gaps and it has a lot of holes for the virus to 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 sort of find its way in. Then it becomes really really hard to to get control of particularly you know covid has also resulted in a real um a real impact on 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 health on health care and the workforce that are able to um go and act to try and get these things under control so there's a lot of things at play here i think Mm. Is vaccine hesitancy part of the um, equation here? I know we saw that ramp up during the pandemic. Um, Is that why we're seeing these gaps in in vaccine scheduling or is it something else? I think it's just one reason. um, The confidence globally in vaccines has declined um, 
over during the course of the pandemic. So we're now we're now in a position where fewer people, you know, feel vaccines are, are safe, fewer people think they're important, and so on. So so that's a problem, and that's superimposed on vaccines just being harder to access at the moment as well. So it's it's a whole host of um, challenges that we, we we face now that we're sort of coming out of that acute phase of the pandemic. Mm, very, very interesting. Um, I mean, I, I've got to ask, um, because we are talking about vaccine safety and young children, particularly, as you said, receiving these vaccines, uh, is it safe for young children as young as six months to receive this MMR vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. It's not a it's not a safety concern in that age group. The the um, reason that the vaccines used older is because um, because of the uh, antibody that they've received from their mother can actually inactivate the vaccine, and see, therefore it doesn't work as well. But because we now have um, we have whole cohorts of of mothers who have got their vac- um, immunity against measles via vaccine, that maternal that maternal uh, protection doesn't last as long and is less likely to interfere with that vaccine so we can bring we can bring those ages down um you know and and have the um and have the children responding uh, reasonably well oh, well that that's good news um now with this outbreak in american samoa they are acting quickly as we we're talking about but how worrying helen do you believe this might be for for the region for neighboring countries like samoa Oh, I think it's, I think, you know, it's a concern. It was, it was a concern before the pandemic. We'd been sort of saying, oh gosh, you know, this is, um, this is looking more and more likely now. It's just not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and, um, and we need to be prepared. And that's going to be hard with such a, um, exhausted workforce. So what, what's the solution here? You mentioned that there are supply chain problems with getting the vaccines to to Pacific countries. Um, you mentioned there's also, you know, concerns around vaccine hesitancy and, and you know, gaps in vaccine coverage. What, what can um, people do around the Pacific moving forward? I think we really do have to focus on on the gaps in in vaccine coverage. I mean, with, with a disease like measles, that is is the most important thing, and to make them really easily accessible to people. Um, and and different different countries, different nations are probably going to face slightly different challenges in that respect. Um, how we overcome that hesitancy? We've really got to work on that trust and mm. and um, and regaining some of that trust that's been lost during the pandemic and in, in the um, I guess in healthcare and in the um, health decision makers. Yes, yes, some important things there, and I guess all of us, all of us who are listening, can perhaps try and access those vaccines, the MMR vaccine in particular. Is that right, Helen? It's it's available to most people in most Pacific countries. Yeah, that that vaccine is the one to to access, and uh, and I think yeah, I think it's MMR across across the most of the Asia Pacific region now. Um, so yes, uh, and and just just be mindful if you can't remember if if you or or your children uh, have had it, um, it's perfectly it's safe to have another dose if you can't remember. Yes. Well, that's important news. Better safe than sorry, isn't it? Um, Dr. Helen Peduces-Harris, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat.
You're welcome. That was Dr. Helen Petusis Harris from the University of Auckland giving us some important news about that um, MMR vaccine. That's measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And she said it is safe to have if you if you're not sure if you've had a dose before. And the reason we're talking about it is because the the number of probable measles cases in American Samoa continues to rise. And and as Dr. Petusis Harris was telling us. There are fears that um, there could we could see uh, similar outbreaks in other Pacific countries as well. So do roll up your sleeves, do get your jab. That's the MMR vaccine to look out for. Do ask your health authorities uh, if, if you can get access to them. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan. Climate scientists say we've reached uncharted territory as the temperatures of the world's oceans break records. Data collected by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration show temperatures over the last month have been higher than any in, 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 than in any previous year. Sonia Feng reports on what this means for the world's climate. Oceans are warming across the globe, and for many, it's a daunting sign. We've never been here before. We are in an uncharted territory, and so that is is alarming. That's Meninia Rowan. She's a professor of oceanography at the University of New South Wales. Data collected by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has shown the average temperature has risen to over 21 degrees, the highest since satellite records began in 1981. While we had the La Nina for the last three years, The oceans were continuing to absorb heat and they were continuing to warm. And now that that La Nina has abated, the air conditioning's been turned off, but the heat's still been cranking up outside. Now we're seeing that manifestation in widespread regions of the global oceans being in marine heatwave conditions. She says it's a sign that El Nino is here. Meteorological organisations are monitoring this very closely. They haven't yet called an El Nino. We were in a La Nina, so the atmospheric patterns were a La Nina phase. We've moved into a neutral phase, but it looks like the models suggest that we're moving into this El Nino phase. But what I can see in the ocean temperatures is the ocean's already there. El Nino is the name used to describe the warm phase of the Pacific when sea surface temperatures rise along the equator, whereas La Nina is the cool phase. If you've been in Australia the last three years, you would have experienced lots of rain in that time. But the spike in ocean temperatures is not just due to La Nina ending, where the patterns are affected by climate change. Professor David Caroli is a counsellor with the Climate Council. We are not doing enough. The last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment Report that was released earlier this year says we need much, much stronger action to limit global emissions of greenhouse gases and global warming will continue until we reach net zero emissions of greenhouse gases globally. And even with the lowest emission scenario, global warming will continue until 2050. He's urging greater action from governments around the world. All governments need to do is increase their reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and to bring earlier their target date for net zero emissions. Australia only has a target date for net zero emissions in 2050. What we need to do is to bring that earlier so that there's a much earlier chance for limiting global warming. Until we hit globally net zero emissions, global warming will continue. So the sooner we bring that, the less will be 
the magnitude of global warming and the less will be the impacts on all people, on all environments and in all communities around the world. Professor Meninia Rowan says higher ocean temperatures have devastating economic and environmental consequences. It impacts our moisture evaporation. Warm temperatures can bring more evaporation, which means you could actually get more rainfall associated with warm waters. It can change the weather patterns. We can see in the ocean itself, we can get changes to communities, species, distributions, animals, distributions, and also abundances. So different organisms might move if they can to get out of the hot water. Or if they can't move, if they're sedentary or sessile or stuck to the bottom and they can't move, they might die. And if these organisms die, they might not come back or their communities may not come back. That was Professor Muninya Rowan from the University of New South Wales, ending that report by Sonia Feng. Nijam 40, hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. Nisian footy. Monday evenings at 6 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. It's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined this Pacific Beat Monday morning with uh, Evan Wasuka. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, uh, Priyanka. Um, and now let's head to Papua New Guinea. I know there was a lot of speculation, a lot of reports around this upcoming uh, Biden visit or expected Biden visit to Papua New Guinea to meet with Pacific leaders. Now that's been confirmed by the Prime Minister, is that right? That's right. A couple of days after that story broke with that post-Korea newspaper front page, and then we ran that story also on ABC, well, James Marapi has come out uh, with a published statement saying his office is confirming that U.S. President Joe Biden will visit the country on the 22nd of May alongside India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, which, which will both take place at the same time. Uh, it's interesting. Yes, we did have that newspaper article come out and then mm-hmm. James Marapa did put out a statement uh, criticizing post-Korea for publishing oh, really? the story. Yes. Uh, so just a day after that criticism, then the official announcement has come out confirming the details in that story. So uh, good confirmation <laughs> from the Prime Minister's office. So that visit will happen on the back of the G7 meeting in Japan and in between the Quad meeting, which is Australia, Japan, and uh, the U.S. So in between that meeting, you'll have uh, the U.S. president in Papua New Guinea. Uh, James Marapi is calling it the historic first meeting. Uh, And while in PNG, Biden will also meet with 18 leaders from the Pacific Islands Forum, who will also be there. We know that Sokovaro has already confirmed that he is traveling to PNG on that date. Uh, Mr. Marape in that statement said he was happy that the Indian Prime Minister will have his scheduled visit to PNG and the US President will be coming to pay respect to Pacific leaders. So uh, interesting words from the Prime Minister's statement. Indeed. The agenda of what, they're going to be, what they'll be talking about isn't clear, but already Marape's statement mentioned climate change will be on the agenda uh, and possibly ec- the economy of the region. But then again, judging by what's been happening over the past year, it's uh, most likely security will be also there, possibly. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, there are other negotiations on the way for PNG-US 
um, sort of agreement, defense agreement. So, um, yes, it won't be surprising to see security on the agenda there. Um, yes, we haven't seen, I guess, Mr. Biden um, come out himself to make a statement about that upcoming trip. Um, but, yes, hopefully we'll get some more clarity on that trip once he does uh, talk about it. Um, now let's head to Cook Islands, Evan. Uh, it's a topic that we've covered here a lot on Pacific Beach, and that's the um, dogs that were put down by police there. Uh, I understand it's been confirmed over 120 dogs. In fact, 124 dogs were put down over the last three months. Can you let us know why? Yes, so the Cook Islands News uh, is reporting that police say they've put down uh, 34 dogs in January, 44 in February, and 46 just last month. Mm. And it's all part of their campaign to deal with stray dogs in the country. Uh, the police spokesman uh, is calling for the public, members of the public, to register their dogs after um, after situations like this. The latest is complaints from Nikau, which is uh, an area in Cook Islands. Uh, in that inc- incident, there were complaints of dogs harassing motorists. So mm-hmm. um, he said uh, in that situation, four dogs were located. They, they were unregistered and they were put down. Uh, so it's part of an ongoing problem and they're trying their best to deal with it. In January, the Cook Islands Police Commissioner, he signed off on warrants for dog rangers. Uh, so th- these dog rangers will be helping police uh, to control uh, stray dogs and helping out with desexing registration and awareness. Yes, yes. Hopefully, particularly that desexing can be used to limit populations and, and make sure this culling doesn't doesn't happen. Because I'm sure it's quite controversial. I mean, it's sad when any animals are put down, um, particularly, you know, what, what, what we call man's best friend, dogs. Um, yeah, it is It is very sad. But I can also understand if they are harassing motorists um, and there is this overpopulation of stray dogs, why, why authorities might need to take... Um, take some of that, uh, yeah, that and action. It's not a problem restricted to Cook Islands. We've seen it in Fiji, Solomon yes. Islands, and Honiara. We we do have lots of uh, issues with uh, stray dogs. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, it's a Pacific, I guess, Pacific-wide problem. But I haven't heard of so much culling happening in in those other countries. Is it, Evan? No, um, in Solomon Islands, we haven't reached that stage where the city council has gone out to do something about it yet. Mm-hmm. So it's a problem that's there but hasn't been dealt with. Yes, yes. I'm sure maybe some authorities are looking at Cook Islands and seeing how this campaign goes. Um, but yes, hopefully it doesn't come to that. No one wants to put dogs down, I'm sure. Um, let's have, to have some good news to sort of clean up lots of, of dead dogs for, for a second. Um, this is about uh, sports news. Fiji and Andrea have made it to the grand final of the Super W competition. Although they were Super W champions last year, they had not been favorites for this weekend match, but they pulled, pulled through. Tell, tell us how it went, Evan. Yes, yeah, so the Fijiana Drua, um, they were, went into this semifinals of the Super W, but they had gone in with two consecutive losses, so they were not the mm-hmm. favorites. Uh, their prospects for winning were not looking good. They were fourth on the table, and they were facing the strongest team in the competition. That's the New South Wales Waratahs. Now, that's on the field. Off the field, there were also issues because just the week before when they were in Queensland for their match, we had that pub- really public incident where the team were turned away from a restaurant because the Fiji Rugby Union hadn't paid for their meal. So uh, so going into this semifinal match, things were not looking good for the Drua on the field and off the field. And it did start off pretty badly for the Drua because 
um, the Waratahs came off really strong and they scored in the 17th second. So right, wow. right from kickoff. So it was pretty, pretty strong um, showing from the, uh, from the Waratahs. And at one stage, the, the match got to 17 points nil to nil. Oh uh, against the Drua. So it was not the best start for the Drua. Uh, but the Fijians came back strong in the second half and uh, they really showed what they were made of. Uh, and Vana Array scored the winner in the, with 10 minutes left to go in the game. So it is a very close one. Um, and at the end, the match was 2017 to the draw. Oh, very gosh. close. Yeah. Very so from 17 nil, they went and got it, got it around to 22 17. That's amazing. Yes, it's a big turnaround. And they came back uh, and scored all the points in that match. Now they've secured a spot in the grand final, so they're making it their second in the row in just their second season in the competition. So they're, they're going to head off to Townsville next, at the weekend to play the Queensland Reds in the grand final. Um, so certainly something to look forward to. Yes, yes. Hopefully they can pull it off uh, again two years in a row, become Super W champs. Um, but yes, the season seems to have been a lot tougher than last season. So so we'll, we'll have to have our fingers crossed and see what happens next weekend. Um, that was the Fijianas, the women's side. How did the men's side go? Not so good. Ah. <laughs> so the men's team, the Fijian Drua, they went down to the Auckland Blues. Uh, this was a match in Lautoka in the Churchill Park, they lost 30-14. to 14. So the Drua coach, Mick Burns, say there's still, they still, they still a chance, a glimmer of hope for, <laughs> for them. They can still crack the quarterfinals. That's the top eight. So they're hoping that they can make that match. But it's going to be a tough one because mm-hmm. next weekend they're back in Suva, another home match. But they're taking on the Wellington Hurricanes. Uh, the New Zealand teams are much tougher in the Super W compared to the Australian teams. Yeah. So it's uh, it'll be a hard one. It'll be a hard ask. But they are playing at home, so maybe. Okay. Well, yes. Let's see. Fingers crossed. Um, some tough, tough sets of matches coming up for the Fijians all around. It seems, but um, we'll see. Hopefully, at least one one of the one of the sides, the men's or the women's, can pull it off. Um, Evan, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. A new discovery in the Pacific's oldest archaeological site is changing the way we think about the region's ancient past. A team of scientists from France, Germany and Vanuatu were able to reconstruct the movements of peoples living in the islands of the Western Pacific thousands of years ago. Jan Kahoot spoke with one of the researchers, archaeologist Edson Willey from Vanuatu, about the findings. Uh, the project was to identify graves and early settlement, settlements in various places on Ipate. Early 2000, we found uh, the Lapita site on Ipate, and uh, carrying on from there, we, we tried, we tried um, finding, looking at potential sites of early settlements. So this discovery, it's it's about finding those artifacts that are travelling, you know, cross inter islands uh, throughout the ages. How does that change our understanding of ancient Pacific civilizations? Because Lapita, the first evidence of man, uh, inhabitants, uh, early settlers in the uh, Pacific, especially Vanuatu, going down Fiji. And, and yes, through studies, there have been intense, uh, intensive studies on the artifacts associated with the, this group of people, especially the Tented stamped pottery. It shows the interactions and the migration routes of uh, early settlers. They, were, they are the initial settlers of the island 3,000 years ago. So far, we haven't found for PNG and Solomons, there's, there, there were um, settlements before this group of people, but 
Um, in Vanuatu, these were the uh, times of uh, the first initial settlers on the islands of Vanuatu. The pottery, the, the travelers, was uh, was unique in the sense that how it was made and the designs on the pots themselves are quite uh, a unique. Uh, how they're made, how they're made is different from other pottery. There's this sequence of pottery throughout the years and generations, but this this type of pottery was only associated to this uh, initial settlement. What specifically did um, the the pottery have that was uh, different? Um, it's the way it was made, uh, the, the 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 shape, uh, the patterns on the pottery itself. It's more dentate. The pots are carinated, and uh, the yeah, the shape, the patterns. It, it's different from the other pottery found later on. The first settlers came to the site. Uh, Lapita. Mm-hmm. Came to Lapita. They migrated from there to different islands. Later on, was there any evidence of people actually coming back to those original sites? And or or no evidence of that. It's just that initial migration. There's evidence um, in the layers uh, where the sites are. Um, the oldest, the oldest layer being. Uh, this Lapita, and then we have other layers of other occupations uh, after the Lapita people. So you can you can easily see the different occupation periods. Some in the same areas, some in other areas. When 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 we excavate, you can usually see the different occupation periods. And you see this. You can do this by looking at the artifacts that are coming up out of the soil there. And you can see the difference the change in the artifact patterns and the artifacts being used. You can you, you can connect them with the researchers compared with the other areas that have the same artifacts. And right, yeah, like uh, Samoa, am I correct? I think I read the document. Yeah. Are you, what, what's the next stage for you guys now and, and the research? Yes, because last year the, the, they, when, when, when we found the site, um, two of our officers found the site and they did uh, prelim- preliminary uh, excavations on the site and just to confirm the rich deposit that was that was there. When they confirmed it, they halted the uh, excavation and we are planning on a new, we are planning on a bigger project that will be starting this year. Yeah, to excavate and pro- provide more information detail excavation. That was archaeologist Edson Woolley from Vanuatu speaking there to reporter Jan Kahoot. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan. Taking issues that female rugby players face to the boardrooms has been a dream for a Samoan Australian. That dream could now become a reality after Moana Leilua was awarded one of only 12 World Rugby Scholarships. The scholarship program aims to develop the current and next generation of female leaders in rugby. Moana is with the Melbourne Rebels as a former Manu Sina player. She also joins us now. Good morning to you, Moana. And congratulations, I should say, um, for this amazing scholarship, scholarship, one of only 12 from around the world. Tell me about how you found out about it, what your reaction was. Yeah, well, um, I actually found out about it um, early March uh, during the Super Round that they hosted here in Nam. Um, uh, to be fair, I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a little bit overwhelmed. I actually thought that I was um, tuning in or zooming in just to clarify bits and pieces of my application. 
Uh, but Bruce Cook from World Rugby and Tini Aiken from Oceania Rugby um, kind of said, no, we're congratulating you. So I was a, I was a little bit um, taken aback, um, pleasantly surprised, that's for sure. Yeah, and so you you knew in March, and I believe these were only un- announced like a few days ago. Did you have to yeah. sort of um, keep your mouth closed and, and hide yeah. this amazing secret? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's basically it. Uh, we were advised that uh, just our, our direct CEOs were, were able to be notified. Um, I, I think most, most of us had thought that it would line with uh, International Women's Day, um, mm. but they had a few things that they needed to do up in Ireland, so... I had to um yeah, bite my tongue and um keep keep everything kinda of, kinda of tight lipped for uh for just over two months. Oh, that must have been so difficult because <laughs> because this is, you know, as I said, one of 12, you're one of 12 yeah. and just two Pacific Islanders yourself and, and um, someone else is part of this um, scholarship program. I mean, what does that mean yeah. for, for representation of, of Oceania rugby as well? Well, it's, it's, it really is amazing um, for Oceania Rugby. So it's Dr. Unoloto Sivi from Donga Rugby Union. Uh, so That's both right. of us will be representing the Oceania region. Um, she's actually based in Tonga. Um, so it's it's really great for the both of us to be able to not only be representing Oceania, um, but myself with Australia and uh, and Una with uh, with Tonga. I just I, like a minor correction. I'm, I'm actually a Samoan New Zealander who happens to be in how cool Australia home. Uh, um, and so it it is quite quite interesting that seeing my name against the Australian flag um, as a Kiwi. Um, <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, we are uh, both representing the blue continent that is the Pacific. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, is is part of what you hope to be doing is is bringing all those trends together, all, all your identities together. New Zealand Nam, as you said, um, with Melbourne Rebels and and also your Samoan heritage as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, the luxury of being able to um, almost have uh, my my feet in both camps. Mm. I applied my trade in rugby union in in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and then to be able to um, really just um, uh, amplify even more here in Australia with the, with the support, the amazing support of the Rugby Union Players Association and Melbourne Rebels. Um, I'm going on to my fourth season now, and so. Um, this is uh, such a great award to be able to receive, but I also know that it comes with, with some responsibilities. So um, I definitely won't be taking it lightly. Yes, yes. Well, let's go into the, the scholarship because it is a scholarship. It's not ju- just an award. Um, well, do you know exactly what it will in- entail, what you'll be doing over the next um, few months? Yeah, well, it's a 12 to 18 month program. Um, the 12 of us will look to um, get together virtually first before we meet together in Paris uh, later on in the year um, at the Cap Gemini La Fontaine campus just outside of Paris. Um, but it also as part of the scholarship, we get opportunities to, to get further education through a platform that they utilise, which is connected to Harvard Business. Yeah. Uh, and then also um, some, uh, some uh, a scholarship grant towards uh, anything that we would like to do around professional development. So my uh, aspirations is governance. Um, as, as many are aware, we do make a, a, a high demographic percentage of the player base, um, but we're not yet well represented um, off the field and especially in, in those boardrooms. So um, my hope is to be able to uh, to look at uh, completing the Australian Institute Companies Directors course, uh, which, is not, which is not exactly cheap. <laughs> and so uh, a portion of the funding um, that I receive will go towards that. Um, and then I, I think, if anything, being able to glean off the other 11 scholar, scholarship recipients. I'm looking forward to meeting them because they're, they're powerhouse women in their own right.
Yes. I mean, Moana, when you say that you're, um, uh, you know, people like you aren't represented in boardrooms, are you, are you talking about the female players? I mean, wh- what do these boardrooms look like for rugby? And, and what, what actually, what, what decisions do they make? What happens between, behind these boardroom doors? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I'm, I'm female and I'm also a Pacific woman. So in some, um, in some respects around the Australian rugby ecosystem, there are females kind of represented everywhere but not enough Pacific people. Um, so that that's kind of where my, um, I guess, my my angle is coming from. Um, I, I've, 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 I'm, I'm in a little bit of a privileged situation where I have been educated. My, I am a daughter of migrants, and through the decision of my parents, I've been educated. I've been able to do all of that back in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so I think for me to make meaningful changes, to have a seat around, um, around one of those boardroom tables, um, I'm fortunate to be able to have a lot of access through my connections at the Melbourne Rebels and with the Rugby Union Player Association, especially as of late. Mm. And so I, I think, if anything, I really just want to go to that next level. And when I do start applying for some board roles, uh, being able to have that AICD qualification will, will bode me well. Mm. And if you do, if you are successful, I guess, in that next next stage after the scholarship and if you do get onto the board, um, what, what, what sort of changes do you hope to implement, Moana? I, I think um, I, I'm a huge believer that um, that we are more than just the brawn on the field. That we do have uh, a unique dynamic that we bring as Pacific people uh, into into rooms and onto conversations. And uh, I think it's it's our time. It's our time to elevate our voices. Uh, too long we've had other people uh, speak on our behalf. Uh, we've got the skill set now. We're equipped enough to make uh, to make our own decisions and to be able to um, I guess allow our people's voices to be heard at those tables where decisions are made. So um, I think for me, it really is just being a um, a conduit uh, for our people. Um, and then until such a time that the next generation are equipped, then I'll definitely be getting out of the way to let them thrive. Mm. Well, I mean, you, you say it's, an, uh, it's about time for female Pacific Island players. I mean, we, we can just see with the Super W results and Fijiana yeah. doing so well. I don't know if you caught that, Moana. Oh, but. no! <laughs> it was amazing. I was like, "Wow, good on them!" Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yes, yes, into the finals again, and hopefully, um, they'll they'll win it for a second year in a row. But yes, a lot of things happening in female rugby, um, and mm. and I, I think you're you're part of it as well, Moana. I'll, I'll say again, congratulations on the scholarship. And yes, it seems like you're you're going to be giving back to the community. At least that's your plan. So, all the best for that as well. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That was Moana Leilua. And as I said, congratulations to her. She's one of 12 World Rugby Scholarships, just 12 scholarship recipients there. Um, She was speaking to us about what she plans to do with that scholarship and how she plans to give it back to other Pacific Islander rugby players just like her. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Your Monday morning is just about wrapping up here on the show. Um, just a reminder of our top story. We started in New Caledonia where we looked at the responses to some of those swimming bans as a result of recent shark attacks. And we also head to American Samoa, where we had a look at the virus, the the measles outbreak that was happening there. We spoke to vaccine expert Helen Putusis-Harris. She spoke to us about um, why we might be seeing uh, uh, more outbreaks around the region coming up. We've had sort of further and significant declines in our vaccine uptake, I'm afraid. And and now that we're all mobile again, um, moving around the planet, Um, measles is just going to keep getting off planes so it is going to be for a while yet a constant threat 
That was uh, Dr. Helen Peduces-Harris underlying why we should all get our vaccine, measles vaccines, as soon as possible. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Hope you have a lovely day.